Welcome to the Future of Supply Chain. Each episode, we bring together leaders across the supply chain space to discuss the role of technology and business model innovation on the future of supply chain. The Future of Supply Chain podcast is presented by Dynamo. Dynamo is a pre-seed and seed stage supply chain investor. To learn more about Dynamo and this show, head over to www.dynamo.vc slash podcasts or subscribe on the platform of your choice. Now let's get into the show. Here's our host, Santosh Sankar. Hey, ladies and gents, welcome back to the Future of Supply Chain podcast. I'm your host, Santosh Sankar. And joining me today is David Akinin from Jabuk, founder and CEO. Welcome, David. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Santosh. Yeah, man. Let's uh, jump right into it. And before we go any further, I think our audience is used to me opening this, but could you give us a 90-second overview on Jabu and what you and the team are building over there just to level set the knowledge amongst our audience? 100%. We're a B2B marketplace in Southern Africa, headquartered out of Namibia. We help small retailers like restaurants, shops, mini markets in the informal economy of primarily Southern Africa for now source and stock the products they need same day delivery free delivery we also help the brands that are associated with this kind of e-commerce mostly fmcg products get a lot of data and marketing opportunities at the edge of our distribution and we built a wallet because we're focused on collecting 100 cash at our merchants and digitizing that is the next stage opportunity for us so, you know, with that, what's the uh, David story? I know you're originally from Venezuela. How, how did a guy with that background end up getting into the world of African supply chain? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, the story gets better as the years move on. My, my mom's Moroccan and my dad's Spanish. So okay. somehow, you know, I've got some African roots, North African roots. Actually, all my grandparents are Spanish Moroccan. My, I, I'm one of four brothers. We grew up in Venezuela. When my brothers and I were young, uh, we were kidnapped in, in what was becoming a turn of events for, for the Venezuelan country and the people in the economy. And my, my parents made a very harsh and tough decision early on in, in 2003 that we would leave the country immediately and move to the United States in, in search of better opportunities. So, you know, for them, it was tough. For us, it was a, a great, great pivoting point and, and, and giving us a lot of opportunities. I went to high school in the U.S. I worked at Google for a few years. I I launched my career after University of Chicago. I went to work at Credit Suisse in banking for four years in M&A, learned a ton about how money works. And I took every one of my vacations into the African continent. So I went to Nigeria, Angola, Ethiopia, South Africa. Eventually, I hit Namibia and I fell in love. I fell in love with the country, its people, but also with the amount of opportunities I could see myself pursuing. And I came to build first a fintech called Fundroof. Uh, I found that there was a huge housing demand and with so many incentives, I could go give out mortgages. And pretty quickly I crashed. I realized that you can go deploy as many mortgages as you want, but only if there's a supply of houses. And since there wasn't a supply of houses, I, I pivoted. I took the money that I had raised and I started building housing. I started building housing, schools, clinics, infrastructure, warehouses. This was back in 2014. I spent a good amount of years building up that company called Tenu Development. My brother Samuel and my brother Ari both moved out into, into Namibia to help me continue building that. And as I got deeper into supply chain, because construction is really all about supply chain, and as I got deeper into the needs of the sector, I also pursued a master's in inclusive innovation in Cape Town. 
And I found a very unique opportunity to venture into this space right at the very beginning of the pandemic. So this is when a lot of the world global issues were, you know, aligned and, and highlighted for, for everyone, but also at the localized level, at the very local level, trying to see how that was impacting all this, all these restrictions that were created were impacting supply chain at the very, very edge of, of informal retail. And that's when I realized we have a unique opportunity to go digitize this entire space to solve a massive pain point and, and start building a company from there. Awesome. You know, I think kind of jumping into Jabu here, you're working on putting this digital link between retailers and suppliers, namely in Namibia, but I also will, will acknowledge you have greater aspirations than that across the continent. But could you give us a sense of kind of the broad market and how operations work today? Yeah, I think there's there's a lot of business models around the world that are being developed to solve a similar issue, but in a completely different context. Today, we operate in Namibia. We also operate in Zambia, and we're busy setting up our operations in South Africa as we as we gear up for, for our fundraise now. You know, we are solving a, a problem that has two very important distinct contexts. One is the reason why there is so much re- informality around retail in the Southern hemisphere of Africa, which, in, you know, it's about 16 countries, 500 million people. And the second one is the, the, the vacuum that exists despite the informality. So on, on the first point, you have uh, apartheid countries that, you know, as you remember Nelson Mandela and some of the issues that came with apartheid, a lot of urban areas didn't allow people of color to to kind of live and or work inside of the urban centers. So you had to, if you moved to a city and you wanted to work at the center of the city in a bank or in a supermarket or wherever it was, you needed a work permit for the longest time. And only 31 years ago, Namibia became independent. 27 years ago, South Africa became independent of these kind of contexts, racial contexts. And what that meant is that for the longest time, you had thousands and thousands of families settling in the periphery of cities, creating what you call massive townships. And these townships, you know, banks and supermarkets didn't set themselves up. And that established why many of these community members who had built small houses around these sides of the city ended up building little shops behind it. So literally today, you go into an informal sector, what we call townships or compounds or barrios in Spanish, for for those who may be thinking about what, what context is that in Latin America, and you find that one out of every three little houses is an actual business, mm. a business as in a supermarket, a restaurant, a little barber shop, and you name it. Now, the, the second point that I made was about the vacuum that exists despite this amount of retailers. You know, one of the, the founder of Chipper is an investor in our company. Chipper in, in, in Colombia is a very similar business model to us, B2B marketplace for retailers. You've got the likes of business models like Udan in India or ShopUp in, in Bangladesh. All of them are trying to solve something which is not only aggregate demand, but aggregate suppliers because there's too many suppliers showing up to these small merchants. In Southern Africa, the problem is different. The problem we're facing in Southern Africa is that no supplier is visiting these merchants. And these merchants have to, number one, take taxis to go back and forth into the city to buy products whenever they have time. That is obviously very costly and at the same time takes a, you know, a ton of their time away. They have to shut down their business, leave their kids with babysitters. But also at the same time, it becomes a massive opportunity for us because not only are we solving that initial pain point of the value chain, 
but we're enabling brands to start getting access, not only from a supply chain, but from a marketing and merchandising perspective into a, a huge part of the economy. I have to imagine the the one thing you, you, you outlined is kind of the state of how when you enter these neighborhoods, like one in three structures are actually places of business. I mean, th- this has to be having a massive mobility, like economic mobility impact, right? what's the impact on on those that you consider a part of your retail network? Because they can wake up one day and make exponentially more by being a part of Jabu. 100%. And I think you hit it in the nail and that's where we, we, we get sticky, right? Like most of the shops that we've dealt with are sitting on income from sales. They have no way to digitize their money. There's no banks nearby. They're sitting on cash, put it under their mattress. And we're literally giving them an opportunity to timely be able to change that cash for products, which they can then sell into their economy. So, you know, we've seen the average basket size grow 5X in the last nine months to the shops we're serving, not only because we're able to help them expand the amount of products they're offering or to help them turn money faster, but because we're able to get there whenever they need us. And I think, you know, that trickles down. That means they're able to go spend more money on electricity, on education, on food, and just build a stronger economy in the places where they live. So, you know, I I saw you own a fleet of trucks as well as eight distribution centers. Why go full stack at the stage and and have that asset exposure? Why why not just do software? How how did you kind of think through that or or what were the underlying reasons behind going full stack? Yeah, I mean that that's a great question one. Now that we're fundraising, it's fun that I get a lot and I and I can tell you Santosh, I wouldn't be building this business any other way. You know, I started building it with uh, gig economy truck drivers who were who were plugging in, and I also started it by renting third-party fulfillment centers. I can tell you both of them are more expensive, and we can go into the details of how I get to those numbers. But something else from beyond the cost that I can say is, from a from a perspective of making sure we can get there for our customers on time, provide the service that we need. There's three things going on. Number one, if I'm hiring a third-party driver or a third-party fulfillment center to get something done for me, and they decide they want to hold me back because there hasn't been a lot of that offered in in, in Africa in general, they, they can just shut me down and it, my entire value chain shuts down. So it, it is an important kind of measure of our success. From a second perspective, you know, we are able to get many of the shops that we're working with to to, to order like at 12 or at one or at two, how do you convince the driver to be available at the times that you need? Also, you know, we've, we've made the numbers to try to identify whether we'd be able to afford paying third-party drivers to, to drive the amount of hours to map parts of the, of the sector that don't exist. And we're doing surmountable work on creating this supply chain. And then I would say that the last thing is, you know, not even the, the brands that we deal with, that have trucks, the likes of Coca-Cola or AB InBev, are able to capture this segment because they're not able to geotag the shops where they're delivering. They're not able to do it in an effective tech you know, way. And at the same time, collect the cash, right? Remember, there's three things we do. We do the supply chain, which is a cornerstone problem we're solving. The second one is collect money. So we've created our own cash fulfillment centers. We digitize the cash experience and we're building our wallet around that. And our trucks are primordial for that because they serve as places where we capture the money, bring it in and bring it to our fulfillment centers. And the third thing is our trucks are also delivering merchandising. 
whether it's people conducting marketing campaigns, inventory takes for brands, or just delivering different new marketing items, you know, it, it's a vessel of allowing us to continue moving products around. So with that, like what, what's physical infrastructure like right now in parts of Africa and, and how much of that or, or, or lack thereof perhaps is slowing down perhaps some of the things you're trying to push with software, or, you know, some of your contemporaries are trying to do in bringing software into the African logistics market as well. Yeah, look, this is an interesting conversation, one that probably will eventually diverge into the different parts of Africa. You know, I am in Southern Africa, like I mentioned, five to 600 million people, 16 different countries. We have the same banks, the same supermarkets, maybe the same languages, common monetary and export policies. So you would think that in this part of the world, we have also common infrastructure. But once you go to West Africa, East Africa, you'd have different answers. So I guess what I'm answering, I'm preempting this by saying that you know, it, it's specific to this part of the of the world. Namibia has amazing roads, right? Like it, the Germans built roads, the Afrikaans built roads during the different wars that were here because they wanted to mobilize tanks. So if you want to drive all the way to the border of Angola, there's a tar road that will get you there without any holes. And that is one of the most spectacular things about the country where we've launched this operation. However, you drive 20 minutes outside of the capital and you venture into informality, into informal retail businesses, and you will eventually need to know which route to take, to know which way to go. Zambia is a little bit more interesting. It, this time of the year, I just came back from Lusaka where we've expanded as our second country of operations. And you've got four hours of rain every day, a lot of potholes in a lot of areas that are quite informal. So you have to be creative about how you engage and the type of trucks you use. From a, from a perspective of what is available, you know, this idea of tons of available trucks out there ready to plug into your app and you know, I'm building software, not very realistic. Also from a payment perspective, I mean, that's a key part of infrastructure. A lot of people ask about infrastructure and they think roads and warehouses and cars, but payment gateways, payment wallets, all of this thing, and that's why we're building it. And then, you know, I'm building a tech company and it's a tech company that, that fixes a lot of physical problems and it requires us to get physical in many ways and operational. That, that's what I'm excited about. But I would say if I was building a point of sale or a wallet, as the core of my business, and then try to figure things out, I don't think we would be successful. So, you know, there may be companies that have been successful or have shown traction to be successful, but in the economies where we work, the people that we engage and the societies that we're trying to solve pain points for, it's really difficult to just come to them and say, hey, here's some software, use it, it'll fix your life. You've got to do something a little bit more physical, more engaging that kind of connects with them as a as a cornerstone pain point and then from there you can build on as much software as you want and so kind of moving along in our uh, conversation here would you be able to just walk us through what the experience is like for your customers be it uh, a retailer or a supplier yeah 100 percent. so these small suppliers uh, sorry the small retailers the, to, to use the same labels that you you gave are you know, have different ways of ordering from us. That's step one. They they have to elicit that they need new products in their shop. And there's different ways in which they do that. Today, they can use our e-commerce app. Interestingly discovered that not everyone has a great phone with an app storage to even download a tiny app. So we've launched an e-commerce website, which allows them to do the exact same thing by just going into a browser with some limitations, but definitely gets them through the door. We've launched a field agent program and a sales agent program. One is a third party, one is in-house which allows for training of the, of the merchants as well. 
to download their app, but also serve as a gateway where they can place orders and digitize their cash. So, you know, there's different channels in how these orders get placed. And finally, from, from, a, from an order aggregation perspective, we have what we call our customer success team, which is one of the most important insights in, in building a company in our market. I would say there's two, actually. One is a customer success team, which is a human touch to a digital experience. You need people to get people comfortable with the idea that we're digitizing the whole value chain. And that is a group of amazing women. One or two guys in that group sneaked in, but amazing women who are always ready to answer your calls, to send you a text message back, to get you on WhatsApp, because we believe that you don't just throw tech and, and slap it into a, an equation and it works. Mm. And then, you know, the, the second insight is the training. You know, we, we employ today over 200 people full-time at Jago. And we've been a year and a half in operation. The only way we would be able to not just onboard and keep and continue growing our company with amazing people is because we've, is, is because we've been able to train people and create a training department that is always behind how do we get you the right tools that you need to do the right thing. So that's, that's the ordering experience. That's the value chain. And then from there, all the orders go to our fulfillment centers where from a route to market perspective, they get dispatched into the different trucks based on weight, based on size, based on route. They go out with a fulfillment agent and a driver. They visit the shop. They, there is a team also letting them know in an automated message when their order is arriving. We collect payment into the app. And then from there, they pay for their products. We deliver the products as well. Sometimes we conduct some merchandising campaigns. And then our trucks come back towards the end of the of the route. Sometimes if it's early on, they go out again. Uh, any truck does about three to four routes in a day. And what are the types of benefits you're seeing these stakeholders derive? Like, are there, are there certain like ROI metrics or efficiency metrics they track in order to champion Jabu? Yeah, I mean, that, that's a question from two sides, right? Like if we think about the brands today, many of the brands we work with have never, ever ventured into this space. They've always sold to what we call in this industry, the modern trade. They go to the, like the big Costco type business and they say, hey, here's product, sell it. We don't care who you sell it to. Let us know if you need more, we'll bring you more. Now we're starting to measure the how many deliveries, uh, how many orders per client, you know, the frequency. We're, we're right now at about almost four, four, the, four orders per month for a client, like 3.8 is our average frequency. We're measuring the average basket size. We're looking very closely at different KPIs that every brand has, and that's helping us evolve our brand dashboard. And you know, specifically on the brand side, we've given them a brand dashboard that allows them to see a bunch of KPIs, geomaps of everything we're doing, but also to merchandise and book campaigns, which in itself has massive amounts of KPIs. They're looking at share of wallet, uh, pricing and benchmarking, product inventory benchmarking, and also trade marketing benchmarking. Uh, how does our trade marketing compare to other brands? And then from a shop's perspective, we, we teach them and we tell them from a finance perspective how much they're saving every time they order with us based on deliveries. We're tracking carbon emissions, something that we care deeply about and on the back end because we imagine if everyone had to take a taxi to go buy this stuff, how are we doing that better from an ESG perspective? We're thinking often about, you know, not only their savings, but how much more they're buying, which means they have more constant cash flow and eventually more profits in, in a net value basis. So, you know, I, you, you mentioned your wallet you're building, but you know, I, I want to dig in here because you're you're helping bring what is a cash-based economy, cash-based workflow online with the Jabu wallet. And 
as investors, this is something interesting to us because we actually have seen supply chain management as a way to embed B2B fintech in many emerging markets. I'd love to kind of chat through like, you know, how you kind of understood this to work. You're, you're so intentional about it and how this needs to be developed in order to be that financial partner as well as supply chain partner for your suppliers and, and retailers as well. You know, I, I've been thinking about this since day one, and I and I want to I want to walk you through my journey of how we got there. I mean, when we first started doing this business, I, I literally drove around with a truck. Five ladies in my truck were amazing salespeople, customer service, and I came home with a bag full of cash and a bag full of invoices. The bag full of invoices. That's how I knew I needed to go create an e-commerce app. That I needed to create a backend. That we needed to figure out how this all reconciled per customer, per shipment, per order. But the bag full of cash, I mean, first of all, I couldn't reconcile it against any order. I couldn't figure out who paid me what at the end of the day if I miscounted on the spot. And then, and then how, what do I do next? How do I, how do I reconcile that to my daily operations, to my monthly operations? And how do I give it to the bank who wants to charge me 3% cash deposit fees? Like I'm doing all the work. So a lot of these things led me to start digging deeper into Southeast Asia and trying to figure out how wallets were built. And really... I came out more confused the more I spoke to more founders and more companies. It was really a question of chicken or the egg. What comes first? Do you digitize the merchant or do you digitize the consumer? And for me at the end, it was, I have to go digitize the incubator, the, the supply chain, the problem, as you said, as an embedded opportunity to then go build FinTech. Then when I, when I went to raise a seed round, you know, obviously I, I ended up getting around and, and, and the investors believed in us, but I had a lot of funds tell me that if I wasn't building a fintech that was going to go lend to all these shops in the next 12 months, they were not interested in investing. And, you know, that's a very complicated approach because how do I go lend to a bunch of people who cannot pay me back, right? I have to go find them in order to get paid. I have to go meet them in order to get paid. So before we go build fintech models that are based on lending, that are based on credit. We need to go build fintech models that are based on digitizing cash, that are based on withdrawals and, and deposit services, that are based on the ability to buy other services like telecom, television programming, and monthly subscriptions. And that's what I'm building right now. Building the, the digitization of the cash process where everyone can feel comfortable to give me their cash instead of put it under their mattress. After that, you can lay on it anything you want, ride sharing, property rentals, lending, insurance. But if you haven't figured out how to pick up all that cash and how to really measure it and let people feel comfortable that you're that value chain that they need, it's very difficult to go lend any money. And I tell you from experience, because I burned like $7,000 before I raised a seed round of my own money, starting to lend and then trying to figure out how do I collect this? What kind of advice would you have for other entrepreneurs, be it in, in Africa and LATAM, Southeast Asia, who, who see this financial opportunity as you did, but need to kind of execute a, another plan in the near future in order to be a winner over there. Because sometimes that could be frustrating. That could also require you to think differently about your team, your strategy. A any advice for those types of people? 100%. Solve a problem, right? Like, for me, what, what's kept me motivated, what's kept me up late at night, what's kept me interested in continuing, regardless of not always being sure where the road may lead from, a, from an action perspective or from a results perspective, is that you know you're solving a problem that is worth solving. So you know, we picked a problem on the supply chain. We realized this thing doesn't exist. 
A lot of people say thank you when we deliver. A lot of people say thank you when we offer them jobs to make this happen. The community is empowered. We feel like we are creating a product that will last even if we won't. And then at the end of the day, we said like, okay, this is something we're solving. So if you're doing that, like, I, I just think you always find you know, whatever is going to come next from it, whether it's a fintech problem or, or what's going to lead you there. If you're not solving a problem, it's very easy to get pushed into the direction that maybe money needs you to go, which is an LP at a fund saying, hey, I need to go into this region or I need more investments into fintech. But if you can convince someone that you're solving a problem that is worth solving, it doesn't really matter what the mandate is as long as you're continuing to build strong. So I'm going to shift gears here a little bit. What would you say is the most underappreciated part of evolving the broader African supply chain? I think the operational side of it, you know, I, I speak to a lot of investors who kind of, I'm trying to share the story of what we're building. You know, there's a lot of hiring components, trying to hire the right team, trying to motivate people, trying to get them excited about what we're building. How do you get a driver excited about driving every day in the same routes? How do you get a fulfillment agent excited about meeting customers who are paying her in cash and her digitizing the money? And I think that's that's highly underappreciated. We, we try to be creative. We try to inspire daily. We try to come into work with our biggest smile because we know that we're building something strong, but not everyone has a, the easy job. And I, I, I think one of, the, one of the ways in which we try to, to show appreciation, because it's not only investors appreciating it, but even people in the tech side or people in the management side appreciating it is to get your hands dirty. And I have a policy, everyone in our company has to be in a delivery, in a, has to be in a, in, a, in, in a shipment, has to go meet the clients, has to know what digitizing money is. In our onboarding, I mean, you have to go through every department. I don't care if you're in product design or you're the cleaner. Even the cleaner goes through every department because everyone should know what we're all working on and everyone should be able to look back and say, I appreciate you for what you're building. Mm, I love that. I love that. As we kind of uh, wrap up here, I, I do have one last question on the business proper, but you know, wh where are you today? I saw some impressive growth numbers. And equally, what are the plans for the future as you continue to build... Uh, uh, Jabu into the preeminent business in Africa. Look, we are we've grown like 29x since March to December of last year. I mentioned also that from a DMV perspective, from a basket size perspective, as I shared with you, we 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 grew that 5x. So not only are we making a stronger business, but a stronger customer and a stronger point of sale for for those consumers. We are in Namibia, operating in four cities. We've launched a very interesting hybrid model with retailers in, in smaller towns. We've expanded now to Lusaka in Zambia, where we have, um, I think, almost 40 people right now in the team, which is really exciting. I've just spent about two and a half weeks there. And uh, you know, we're, we're, we're hiring a lot, not, not, just at the, not just at the operations and tech level, but even at the, at the lowest level of, of, of the value chain for us, which would be fulfillment agents, sales agents, field agents. And, and we're really proud of that because that's how we really engage with our customers. That's the frontier, the, the everyday smile that, that, we, that we deliver. And with that, I want to finish off with uh, what I called uh, a, a rapid fire, but I, I want to focus on kind of you as a founder, company building, if you would. So you get about 10 seconds to just kind of share what's top of mind when you hear these three different phrases. Does that work for you? Okay, 100%. Your favorite habit? Calling my mom. Or dad, and I think that that sounds crazy and not very company building, but it's it's an important balance in my life. Every time I get a minute, pick up my phone and call my parents, see how they're doing once a day, twice a day, whatever it means. It's refreshing. Biggest challenge building Jabu so far? 
Yeah, I think all the moving pieces. We're not building a, a one a, a one small part of it. We we have to build a lot of it, and at the same time, and I think uh, getting up to speed with all of that was was probably the biggest challenge. The, the cash part, especially. And then finally, your fondest memory as a founder. You know, when we when I launched Zambia with my co like a co-founder, a partner, our COO Eugene. You know, he's Ukrainian, I'm Venezuelan, and we've been friends for 10 years working in Africa together. And we launched Zambia and the way people danced and sang to the idea of Jabu coming into their town when they realized that we were going to be solving a massive pain point from them. The songs, the music, and the dancing is still something that, that plays in my head every morning when I wake up since, since a couple months ago. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, with that, David, I appreciate you spending time with us. I appreciate you sharing the Jabu story and we look forward to uh, seeing your continued growth. Yeah, thanks so much, Santosh. All the best. Cheers. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a five-star review and tell us what you liked. And be sure to head over to podcast.dynamo.vc to keep up to date with our latest content or subscribe on the podcast platform of your choice. Until next time.